Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you here. Well, this morning we uh, continue on our journey through the wisdom literature, having uh, briefly taken an overview look at each of the books. We've now moved on to some of the topical issues that this literature deals with, and wisdom with wealth is one of those. And my husband and I have had many laughs over this last week about the prospect of me preaching about wisdom uh, with wealth, because uh, for any of you who know much about me at all and much about how our family works, uh, you would know that finances are not something that I have very much at all to do with or that I have very much idea at all about. I'm one of those people who, you know, someone gives a, a gift of money for their birthday and I promptly forget about it and discover it a year later in the pocket of my jeans. I'm one of those people who has managed to get through life without ever really taking much notice of anything financial. Uh, and my disinterest in the topic is legendary within my wider family. I couldn't tell you which bank account my salary goes into. In fact, I couldn't tell you the numbers of any of our bank accounts or how to access any of them online. Um, I'm one of those people who's managed to get through all of life so far, having only ever paid one bill. And that was the dog's registration because I knew that my husband wasn't going to take much interest in registering the dog. Um, in fact, so terrible am I that our bookkeeper here at Pathway and uh, our personal accountant both have learned it's just easier if they bypass me and go to the person who will actually be able to give them a meaningful answer about whatever it is that they uh, need to know. And even my own parents have deserted me and opted for my husband as the executor, um, their own executor, um, because they figure that I would be completely useless at the job. Bruce has tried to teach me on many occasions um, to be a bit more financially savvy, um, but it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other ear. And I think that maybe that part of our brains that is devoted to that sort of thing, maybe I didn't get handed a lot of that, or maybe I've just put it you know, to use in other areas. Um, fortunately, for all of us this morning, biblical wisdom with wealth has very little to do with that kind of knowledge. It is more about attitude, um, not aptitude. So if you were here for that kind of advice, then sadly you've come to the wrong place because I'm very much not the person to give it to you. Um, preachers often, historically, have had a lot to say about wealth and that's probably to be expected because the Bible has a lot to say about it too. There are about 2,000 verses within the Bible um, about money or, and how we use it. That is more than what there is about prayer. So we have to conclude from that that this is a topic that God wants his people to know about. He wants them to have his perspective on money and wealth. And unfortunately, his perspective has been 
very much distorted. Um, in many ways over the years, such that what is being preached often bears little resemblance to what is in God's word. Many of you will remember that the 70s, 80s and 90s were awash with vibrant and compelling speakers who preached that wealth was a sign of connection with God, with a God who wants all of his people to be healthy and to be financially wealthy and that he would reward them with good health and with wealth according to the size of their faith. If you weren't healthy or wealthy, then obviously your faith was too small. And the solution to that was simple. You needed to take a step of faith and you could do that by sending in your money. It was a seed. They called it a seed, a seed of faith. And you would send it in and watch as God repaid it, like some sort of bank interest thing. You would send the seed and, and you would earn on it. And the way that you would earn would be in the form of wealth that was returned to you or health, healing. And if you managed to pick up a few extra hours at work the following week or perhaps a neighbour was very generous to you with groceries or maybe someone... Um, fixed your car free of charge, a friend might fix your car free of charge, well, that was a sure sign that your seed was growing, that you were being rewarded for this seed of faith that you'd paid forward. Give more and watch more grow. But if nothing happened to you or maybe your situation became worse, well, clearly your faith was too small and the remedy to that was simple, send in more. And watch it grow. And these were some of the catch cries of that era. God wants you to prosper. Well, that's not untrue, but it's very easy to twist it into something that it's not meant to be. You can be successful. Wealth is yours for the claiming. And much of this was backed up in the lifestyle of the people that preached it um, because they had lavish lifestyles, many of them. Um, Multi-million dollar mansions and private jets and airstrips and all of that sort of thing, which were all supposedly evidence of their extraordinary faith. There is no other biblical teaching that I can think of that has been as extensively abused as has God's word on wealth and how we use it. And I'm going to give you an example of what that might look like. First of all, you take a proverb or any verse of scripture really that seems to suit your objective. And so we might use Proverbs 15:6 as a good example. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in the home of the wicked. Now this is a verse from Proverbs and the very first thing that we learnt about reading the Proverbs well a couple of weeks ago was that these are Proverbs, hence the name of the book. The book is not called Promises, it's called Proverbs. So we're not to take them as promises. But if we were, if we were to do that, if great wealth is in the house of the righteous is a promise, 
then surely we would have to wonder why Jesus wasn't the most wealthiest man on earth. Well, the fact that it is a proverb and not a promise is, doesn't really suit our purposes if we're trying to um, make this into something that it's not. So if we just conveniently ignore it and we claim this one as a promise, then if I want great wealth, surely what I need to do is to pursue righteousness and then great wealth will definitely follow. Well, the next thing that we learned about reading the Proverbs is that wisdom comes as part of a multi-volume set. There's a multi-volume set there in the Old Testament wisdom literature and that's part of a bigger multi-volume set which is the Bible as a whole. And we're supposed to read it like that. So here we have Proverbs telling us that great wealth is in the house of the righteous. But if we listen carefully, we can hear another voice within that wisdom literature. And that, of course, is the voice of Job. And Job tells us that even the most righteous can suffer great trouble. But there's yet another voice that we can hear and that is the voice of the teacher in Ecclesiastes who says, even if you gain great wealth, it may not always be to your benefit. So Proverbs gives us the general advice but we have to balance it up with what the other voices within that box set of literature are saying. And we have to read them as a whole. Now, if you were trying to, to do what, what I'd said earlier on and try and twist that proverb um, to make it a promise, um, this is a kind of inconvenient truth that you would want to avoid. So along with treating it as a promise, you're also going to have to separate that verse out from the rest of the proverbs, which have a lot to say about wealth and how we use it, but you're going to have to separate it out as well from the rest of that box set of the wisdom literature and you're going to have to ignore most of Jesus' teachings about how we use our money. But why should we complicate the truth with the full picture? You can see how it becomes very, very easy to manipulate the word of God. And we need to be careful when we're reading the truth that we get the whole truth and not just a taste for the truth. And that's what I want to try and do today. The Bible as a whole has a lot to say about wisdom and wealth. And today we're mostly going to focus on the, that Old Testament wisdom literature, those five books that we've been looking at. But I want to try and distill it down a little bit to give us a sense of what a biblically wise person, what sort of a perspective they would have on wealth. And what I want to do is to give you um, two principles, which I think are the general overriding principles that pervade the wisdom literature in terms of wealth. And beneath those couple of principles, there will be a number of guidelines that we'll get to as well. So two principles and a number of guidelines. But before I go any further, I was supposed to tell you something, which I've forgotten. 
There's a dark grey car, white car, sorry, parked along the fence line and the boot's wide open. And if it rains, it's going to get very wet. So if that's your car, you might want to deal with that. <laughs> See, as, as well as having no financial savvy, someone can tell me something like 30 seconds before I stand up here and then it just goes out of my brain. <laughs> All right, so we're going to look, at the, look for these two principles. The first of these two principles is to invest in first things first. Put the things that matter first. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare to her and overwhelmingly this is the message of the father to the son throughout the book of proverbs pursue wisdom search for her as you would hidden treasure go after her with everything that you've got but wisdom is not the only thing in proverbs that is held out to us as more valuable or of greater importance than wealth. Honesty is held out as more valuable. Better to be poor than to be a liar, says Proverbs 19.22. Integrity, Proverbs 28.6. Better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. Righteousness. Proverbs 16.8, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Reputation, our reputation is important. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver and gold. Love, Proverbs 15.17, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. Peace, Proverbs 17.1. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And finally, salvation, Proverbs 11.4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death. So overwhelmingly, the message that we get from the wisdom literature is that there are many things which are much more highly desirable for us than is wealth. And if you must choose between any of these things and wealth, the message from the wisdom literature is very clear. Choose your character Choose your reputation. Choose your relationship with God and others. Choose your eternal destiny. All of them are of far greater value to you than is wealth. So we must be very careful not to compromise any of them in the pursuit of earthly wealth. This man is probably not a familiar figure to many of you, but perhaps the fruits of his hands are. So this is Josiah Wedgwood. 
He was the entrepreneur, one of the wealthiest men of the 18th century, founder of the Wedgwood Empire, which endures to this day. He uh, founded his empire based on his father's very humble pottery business. And Josiah Wedgwood was an innovator and an entrepreneur. He did a lot of experimentation with dyes and colourings and different materials in those days. But he's also credited as being the father of many of the modern marketing strategies that are still in place today. Catalogues were one of the things uh, that he adopted very early on. Buy one, get one free. Money back guarantees. Um, and having like, a celebrity endorsement, but in his case it was a royal endorsement. All of these things, which are still very much a part of marketing today, were all um, come out of this man's industry. But perhaps his greatest innovation or his, his greatest achievement for his own um, business sake was being able to convince the lower and middle classes of their need for some of the things that the upper classes had and being able to supply something that could fill that need at a much lower cost to make it readily available to all of those lower and middle classes. So he was able to produce pottery that not only looked like what the upper middle class were using, but it was also durable and very usable and practical. And that is how he made his very great fortune. But Josiah Wedgwood is credited for much more than just making money. He used his money and his high profile, which came with his money, to support many just causes. And the one that he's best well known for, most well known for is that of abolition, abolition of slavery. And so the little image down the bottom with the man um, in chains uh, was one um, which he had made and he made hundreds and hundreds of these things and distributed them as part of the cause. And they had the little slogan on them that said, am I not a man and a brother? And that became like a catch cry of the, the abolition movement. He's also remembered as a man who looked after his workers. He paid them fairly and well, but he also regularly gifted them with gifts of clothing and shoes and that sort of thing. And in return, they rewarded him with obedience, with loyalty, with good behaviour and with punctuality. And there is a story told of a, a nobleman who came to visit uh, the factory. And Josiah asked one of his apprentices, a 15-year-old boy, to take this nobleman on, on a tour around the factory and show him the different areas and explain to him what was done in each of the areas and, and how things worked. And so the boy did that. And the nobleman was very impressed by everything that he saw on that tour. Yet as he toured the site, the nobleman was increasingly foul-mouthed. He was increasingly cynical. And he would make light of sacred things in front of the boy, ridiculing God and the Bible. And at first, this shocked the young apprentice. He was taken aback. 
But as the two became more familiar with one another and as the tour wore on, the apprentice began to join in laughing at his cynical jokes and his blasphemous comments. And Josiah Wedgwood followed along not far behind on this tour and he became increasingly indignant about the effect that this man was having on his employee. Eventually the tour came to an end and the apprentice uh, went back to his work and Josiah Wedgwood and the nobleman met to discuss business in his office. Josiah selected a particularly beautiful vase, one that had, was an original, it had been handcrafted, and he pointed out the great effort and care and the craftsmanship that had gone into this vase and he handed it towards the, the nobleman. And the nobleman was impressed by the great beauty of this vase. He hadn't seen one like it before and he reached out to take the vase that was being given to him as a gift, but before he could reach it, the creator of that vase smashed it to the ground, let it drop. And this angered the nobleman. I wanted that one for myself, he exclaimed. You've ruined it by your carelessness. And Wedgwood had this to say in reply. He said, there are things far more precious than this vase, things which when ruined can never be restored. I can make another vase like this for you, but you can never give back to that boy who's just left the innocent faith and the purity of heart which you have destroyed by making light of sacred things and using impure words in his presence. Josiah Wedgwood reminds us that we need to keep first things first. He was a Christian, he was in charge of considerable wealth, but he never allowed that wealth to own him because he was investing, first of all, in the things that mattered most. The other very important principle that the wisdom literature teaches us about wealth is that it is fleeting. Proverbs 23, 4 to 5 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but glances at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Or Proverbs 27, 23 to 24, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure, and a crown is not guaranteed for all generations. Wealth can be fleeting in an earthly sense, and we all have seen that that can be true, haven't we, in the last couple of years. We've seen people who had put their heart and soul and all of their savings into businesses in the city, uh, restaurants and cafes and the like, and they watched in despair as they crumbled under the restrictions that were imposed on them. People lost a lot of money in that process. Or we've seen people not once but twice watch as everything was destroyed by floods up in Queensland and northern New South Wales. Natural disasters strike, the value of your land suddenly plummets and what are you left with? 
In some cases, earthly wealth may endure. We may be one of those people who get through all of life without having disaster strike us, but there are no guarantees. And the Bible affirms that in the life of Job. Wealthy, well-known, and then reduced to poverty and grief when disaster struck. It happens. And so like Job, we must be careful to ensure that we are investing in things that last. But Ecclesiastes reminds us that wealth is not only fleeting in an earthly sense, from an eternal perspective, it is even more so. Ecclesiastes 5.15 tells us this. Naked we come from our mother's womb and naked we'll depart, taking nothing from our labour which we can carry in our hand. When we die, whatever we have accrued, whether it be vast and mighty or just tiny, all of us will leave behind the same thing. We will leave behind everything we have ever owned. From an eternal perspective, our physical lives on earth are only a tiny part of the life that God has in store for us. And so it would be the height of foolishness to invest all of our energies into amassing for ourselves things that will only last for that tiny part. When we die, it is only our spiritual wealth that we can take with us. That's why Jesus tells us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. What he's saying is invest in things that will last. So things that matter and things that last, that is where the wise will invest. And that, I believe, is the core of what this wisdom literature is telling us about wisdom with wealth. But to leave it there would be to ignore the reality that all of us have to live our lives on earth in the here and now. And all of us need food to eat and clothes to wear and all of us have bills to pay. And that involves earning and using money. Nowhere in the Bible is that reality denied. We all have to do those things and the Bible has yet more advice for us um, on how we should do those things. Now the flip side of the prosperity doctrine is the belief amongst some Christians that all money is evil and we should do our best to stay well away from it. That taking up our cross and following Jesus somehow involves completely withdrawing from the world. And this perception was popularised with this little saying which has biblical roots the only problem is that that is not what the Bible says at all. What the Bible says is not that money is the root of all evil. What the Bible says is that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There's more than one root, there's lots of evil, and it is not money that is one of the roots of all kinds of evil, it is the love of money. There is nothing wrong with a Christian being wealthy. Many 
wealthy believers supported Jesus and supported the Apostle Paul in their ministries. Paul singled out the Philippian church for their generosity. Their generosity met his physical needs and encouraged him greatly. And likewise today, ministry and mission would not happen without the generous support of those who are able to give towards it. And the wisdom literature is very practical in this respect, recognising that money is an essential part of our lives. It's neither good nor bad of itself. And the Bible gives us practical guidelines to help us handle it. And all of these guidelines fall beneath those two principles of investing in things that matter and things that last. So I'm going to deal with them quite quickly now as we move through each one. The first of these is to invest justly. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth will be full of gravel. God's overriding concern for the poor and the vulnerable is evident in this proverb and in so many others like it. The way that we earn our money matters very much to God. Our heart and our attitude should reflect his heart and his attitude towards the poor and the vulnerable. And so we must be careful that our investments and our purchases are not contributing to the exploitation of others. Debt is another topic that the Bible has a lot to say about and debt is easily racked up in our society. There would hardly be a student who makes it out of university without already being straddled by a whole load of student debt. There would hardly be a person who is able to purchase a house these days without taking out a loan. We have credit cards, we have afterpay and all sorts of other schemes that make it easy for us to get something now and to pay for it later. Proverbs 22, 26 to 27 says, Do not be one who shakes hands in pledge or puts up a security for debt. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched out from under you. If you lack the means to pay. Those who are wise will take heed of this advice and approach debt with the caution that it deserves. The wisdom literature is also very realistic in warning us about the temptations that come with wealth as well as those that come with poverty. Towards the end of the book of Proverbs, there are some sayings from Alga. One of them is this, it's a prayer, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. The very great temptation that comes with wealth is that as we accumulate more and more of it, we come to depend more and more on it and less and less on God. And as we dedicate more and more time to accumulating it, we dedicate less and less time to our relationship with God. 
we appear to be doing quite all right on our own. So we put more energy and effort into what appears to be working and less energy and effort into our relationship with Christ. Eventually, there's a lot of wealth and not a lot of relationship. And perhaps that is why the church is in decline in the West and is booming in those parts of the world where people need to depend on God for everything that they have. Depending on wealth can lead to spiritual blindness and that is what the Bible is warning us about. In addition to all of that, we need to be diligent. So depending on God does not mean sitting there and waiting for God to land what you need in your lap. Uh, the best known proverb was actually one that we did read in our reading this morning, Proverbs 6, 9 to 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, and yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, scarcity like an armed man. So we must trust God to provide for our needs, definitely, but we must also honour him by doing our part and working hard. Those who are wise with wealth will also be characterised, says the wisdom literature, by their generosity. There are many, many proverbs in this respect, so we know that generosity is important. And so for the sake of time, I've had to just pick one. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. And Jesus speaks a very similar message in the Gospel of Luke 6.38. Give and it will be given to you, he says. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For by the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. Believers should be characterised by their generosity. We should also be characterised with contentment. Contentment and gratitude for what we have. The teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless, he says. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner? except to feast his eyes on them. It's kind of hard to believe that that little piece of advice was written several thousand years ago because it is as equally relevant today as it was back then. He continues in 519, Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. That's what we're supposed to be occupied with, gladness of heart. 
But instead, we are often preoccupied with getting a bigger TV, with the better holiday that someone's having than the holiday that we had, with the better car that someone's driving than the car that we're driving, with the nicer kitchen that someone's just renovated than our own kitchen at home. Instead of honouring God, we end up chasing these things as idols. The story is told of a, a wealthy businessman who happened to be out walking along the harbour and he came across a fisherman sitting beside his boat, gazing out at the sea and the horizon. And he said to the fisherman, why aren't you out catching fish? And the fisherman said, well, I've caught enough fish for today. He said, but the weather's beautiful. It's great fishing weather. You should go out because then you could catch more fish. And he said, but what would I do with these extra fish that I caught? And the businessman said, well, of course, you would sell them and then you could earn more money. And with more money, you could improve your boats. You could even get a better boat. And you could equip that boat with the strongest and biggest of nets. And a better and bigger boat would take you deeper out into the ocean where you could access more fish. The biggest schools of fish are out further in the ocean. Pretty soon you'd have for yourself a whole fleet of boats, a whole fishing business. And you could make even more money. And the fisherman said, well, then what would I do? And the businessman said, well, then you could sit back and relax and enjoy life. And the fisherman just looked at him and said, what do you think it is that I'm doing now? And he continued looking out at the horizon. Contentment is something that is very hard to come by in today's world. And we need to learn to focus on what it is that we do have instead of what we don't have. You know, if we believe that this earthly life is all that there is for us, then it would be completely understandable for us to try and make ourselves as comfortable as we possibly could in this life. Wealth and possessions would make sense that they would be our highest aim because there's nothing else. But that is not what we believe at all. Our time on earth is just a tiny fraction of this life that God has for us. And our highest aim should be to get to know Jesus and to be as much like him as we can possibly be in this earthly life that we've been given. And the reality is that whether we like it or not, money is an important part of our time on earth. The Bible doesn't deny that. Instead, it's very realistic about both the benefits and the potential downfalls of wealth. And it is full of wisdom that helps us to have a right perspective on wealth. In his letter to Timothy, the young pastor, um, Apostle Paul wrote these words. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God 
who richly supplies us with all things. What is important here is perspective. Paul doesn't tell Timothy that wealth is bad and that he should instruct everyone who knows who's wealthy to get rid of their wealth. Instead, he instructs him to tell them to have a correct perspective on that wealth. Perhaps more than anything else in our world today, wealth stands as an idol, calling us to worship her. It is a constant challenge for believers to keep a correct perspective so that that pursuit of wealth doesn't subvert our pursuit of God. Ultimately, regardless of how little or how much wealth we have, it is our perspective towards it that counts because it is like a window to our soul. People will look through it and they will know what perspective we have, where we put our trust, what we think about life. They will see it by the way in which we use our wealth. So as we close this morning, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that other people see when they look through my window to my soul? Does my perspective on wealth indicate to them that knowing Jesus and becoming as much like him as I possibly can do in this lifetime, that that is my highest priority? Or does it tell them another story? What does the way I use money tell others about my priorities in life? And what is it that I'm actually investing in? Let's pray together as we close. Forgive us, Lord, because we often allow the pursuit of wealth to become an idol in our lives. Forgive us for being discontent continually with all that we have and for our lack of generosity with it. You have blessed us with much, much more than we deserve. Lord, may we never depend on it and may we always depend on you. You are immeasurably more valuable than anything we could possibly own. Help us, Lord, to keep a proper perspective on wealth and to use what we have for your glory and honour. Amen. And the song that uh, I've chosen for us to finish off with this morning speaks of that correct perspective on wealth. It's called All I Once Held Dear. Mm -hmm.